And now for something completely different. Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And welcome to the show this morning. Of course, it's Monday as we get ready to wrap up the month of January. And it's been quite a month so far. Uh, you know, we started out talking earlier about the failure of the Santa Claus rally, and then we had the failure of the first five days. And of course, that's always a concern. As the old adage goes, so goes the first five days, so goes the month. Well, it didn't turn out that way this year. Uh, the month of January has turned out to be a fairly positive month, up about 2% or so. Still got a couple of days left. I mean, you know, anything can happen. But uh, this week, we have a lot of stuff going on. We've got the FOMC meeting. We're going to have inflation numbers up. Then we're going to have employment out. So we just got all kinds of stuff this week coming out that could, you know, certainly roil the market one direction or the other. But so far, the economic data has just been, it's been okay. Now, it's been okay on the surface, and this is the important thing. So, you know, we had our conference over the weekend. Great turnout. It was a lot of fun. If you missed it, certainly want you to come back next year. Um, and, uh, you know, we, can, we had a great time just kind of hanging out with everybody, talking to people. But, you know, one of the common, you know, statements that was made was, well, you know, the GDP number is actually very strong here, you know, 3.3% GDP growth. But that's only on the surface. See, the, you know, the problem with a lot of this economic data is we look at it at the surface, and yes, on the surface, and, and look, and to be honest and to be fair, all the market cares about is what's happening on the surface, right? So 3.3% economic growth, that's certainly good. The problem was is that it took $2.53 of debt in the fourth quarter to generate that 3.3% rate of return. So in other words, we increased our debt by over $850 billion for a $350 billion increase in GDP. So again, it's just taking more and more debt to create that economic growth. And of course, sustainability is always the, you know, the issue here. But you know, it's interesting as we get ready to head into the political uh, election coming up in November, you know, we should be thinking about not right or left or, you know, Trump versus Biden or whatever. We really should be thinking about that. We should be thinking about who's going to give us the best policy mix to start making economic prosperity stronger for everybody. And again, that's through, <laughs> unfortunately, that's going to be a reduction in debt. So it's going to lead to slower growth and we're going to have to go through that pain. But see, nobody wants to go through that cycle where we've got to reduce our debt to create better economic prosperity. Because the more debt you have, the weaker economic growth you have. And yes, when you have a headline number of 3.3%, it certainly sounds good. But again, when it's driven by debt, it's not sustainable. So you know, this is going to be one of the big challenges that we face. And it's going to be something the market is going to have to deal with. You know, our, comment, our uh, blog post tomorrow is talking about valuations in particular. Um, but you know, valuations are being driven by debt. The more debt we have, the higher that the valuations go because people are trading up. In fact, we have a very expensive market, uh, really just about by, by just about any measure that you pick, we're trading 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80% higher than the long-term averages. <laughs> and so, you know, there's, there's a, a valuation mix. And, and again, whether it's price to sales or price to earnings or 
price to cash flow, any, any type of measure you look at, we're trading at a very, very high level. Again, that doesn't mean the markets crash tomorrow. Valuations are a long-term game, right? The valuations tell you what's gonna happen over the next 10 years, not what's gonna to happen tomorrow. So if you're just speculating in the markets and you're just trading for fun, then you don't worry about this kind of stuff. But if you're graduating college, maybe thinking about going out and getting a job and raising a family and buying a house, the more debt you have, the more challenging that becomes. And this is why we're seeing this you know, this rising tension within the economy, this division between the haves and the have-nots. Because the have-nots are getting, their capital is getting extracted by the haves, and this is making life more difficult. And this is why you take a look at poll after poll after poll, uh, presidential approval ratings are very low because of the economy, right? It's, it's as George Bush once said, it's the economy, stupid. Um, and that's really kind of where we are today. So again, it's going to be very interesting as we go forward through this year. But this week in particular with the FOMC, um, employment reports, inflation, et cetera, we're going to take a look at a lot of this data and we're going to hear from the Fed, of course, and what the, all the market cares about is what the Fed's going to do. Um, but again, this is, this is the environment that we're in currently. Okay. With that said, here's what you need to know before the bell. So let's talk about where we ended up on Friday. Again, markets uh, doing, doing just fine. We've had this nice little rally here this month, particularly over the last few weeks as we entered into earnings season. Something that we talked about, we said, you know, one thing that may hold up this market is earnings. We lowered estimates enough that, you know, companies will have a big beat rate on earnings. And of course, that's exactly what's going to happen. Um, and this, is, this has been, and so we've had this nice rally in the markets. The thing to note is, and again, there's nothing wrong with this in the short term, and, and it can certainly stay this way for longer than you think. But these deviations that we get above both short term and longer term moving averages is hard to maintain. We've talked about stretching a rubber band in one direction. So when you stretch the rubber band as far as you can in one direction, in other words, these deviations, uh, the markets are going to correct back to those support levels at some point. And again, if you take a look as an example, you know, when you get these kind of deviations from the 20-day moving average, as an example, um, you always get a correction back towards that 20-day moving average at some point. And so you're going to get this correctional process that comes along, give you a little bit better entry point. Again, these aren't deep corrections by any stretch of the imagination, but as we get into February, February tends to be one of the weaker trading months of the year. So once we kind of get through the FOMC meeting on Wednesday, uh, kind of get through the first couple of days of February, may expect to see a little bit of a correction in February. That'd be absolutely normal. And again, that would resolve some of these bigger deviations that you get from these moving averages. Again, currently, again, there's not much to worry about here. We're on a buy signal, which is going to suggest that downside risk is somewhat limited, but markets are back to very overbought conditions. And that's going to probably set up again a bit of this correction, work off some of that overbought condition and allow for a better entry point. So if you need to increase equity exposure uh, for the markets right now, if you're underweight, have a lot of cash, etc., that would be a better opportunity than trying to chase markets here. Now, one of the interesting things coming up is uh, next this week and next week, we're going to start hearing from a lot of the big mega cap companies, Microsoft, Amazon, Google, these companies. Interestingly enough, more often than not, when they report earnings, good, bad, or indifferent, their stocks tend to decline. And so you could, if you're looking to make an entry into some of those, those companies, the odds are more often than not on an odds basis that they typically sell off on earnings 
give you a better entry point, and then they kind of rally back after that. So again, just something to kind of pay attention to as we get into earnings this season. But something is going to trigger a bit of a correction in the markets, and we'll come back down and we'll retest at least the 20-day, if not the 50-day moving average uh, in the market. So again, just again, the markets are extended. Be careful adding money here. You'll get a better opportunity, but I know it's hard, right? You know, when markets are just kind of going up every day, it's like, oh man, I'm missing out and I want to jump in, but that's typically not the best thing to do. Just be patient. You'll get an opportunity. And again, we're talking about the overall major market. There's individual stocks that are already correcting, sitting on support. So, I mean, you know, if you're in buying individual companies, always look at, you know, kind of the, the technical setup for entry points for each individual company. There's always opportunities out there. You just have to look around and find them. But that's what you need to know before the bell this morning. When we come back, I want to talk about an article I wrote on Friday. It's one of the big media myths that's running around right now called cash on the sidelines. Uh, and everybody's expecting, hey, there's trillions of dollars there. It's just all coming to the markets. Markets are going to go up forever. It's not really the case. And I'll explain to you why when we come back from the break. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. <laughs> and welcome back to the show this morning. So, you know, one of the myths, and, and, I, and this goes on every couple of years, right? that you know the media is kind of starts digging around for a reason why the markets are going up and they're just going to go up forever because of one reason or the other and when they kind of run run out of other reasons they always turn back to well there's all this cash on the sideline and, and that all that cash is going to come soaring into the market and you know this is this is problematic so i wrote an article about this on friday it's on the website now so i'm going to show you a few charts from it just to kind of prove the point but um, so go to the website, realinvestmentadvice.com, and you can download a copy of the article, get all the charts and graphs, share it with your friends, <laughs> tweet them out, whatever. Um, but, you know, this idea of, of cash on the sidelines is always problematic. And, you know, I've got a chart here. You know, we have a record amount of cash in money market accounts. And, and there's a couple of takeaways from this because, yes, you know, we've had this big surge in, in cash balances into money markets. And I'll explain to you where it all came from. But this isn't necessarily money that's just sitting there waiting to be invested in the stock market. It, it would seem that way, right? It would seem like, oh, there's all this money in money market. is just all going to come running back into the stock market. And that's going to drive prices higher. But there's a couple of fallacies with that. The first of all is that, as this other chart shows here, if, if that was the case right, then all this cash on the sidelines would have come into the markets a long time ago, right? And, you know, it's, it's all been sitting there. It just keeps piling up. There's just more and more cash kind of piling up on the sidelines. And, you know, it, you, it, if, if it was all going to come out of the money market, go in the stock market, you would have, you know, it wouldn't be piling up, right? So it's kind of the, the, one, the one problem right there is that money market piles just keep piling up. So it tells you one thing. 
But interestingly, as, as we, there's, there's a, a thesis you have to understand about this. And we talked about this on the show before, so you may have a, you may get some reiteration of this. But let's just assume for a moment that there's a big wad of cash just sitting in the money market waiting to come into the stock market. And then all of a sudden, it does that. Now, if it all came in one day, the price of the market would go up, okay, somewhat. Because remember, for every buyer, there has to be a seller. So if you want to come buy shares of Apple from me, I've got to be willing to sell them to you. So all we're going to do is we're going to swap cash for shares in Apple. That's all we're going to do. We're just going to do a transaction. Now, the differentiator of that is, is at what price do we make that transaction because it's a market. So if you have a, if, if a trillion dollars of, of money market cash comes rushing into the market all in one day and they all buy Apple, right, the price of Apple will go up because buyers are going to go, uh, I mean, uh, sellers are going to go, wait, wait, there's a whole bunch of people wanting to buy my shares. Well, you're going to have to buy them from me at a higher price. There's always the bid and the ask. But at the most basic level, if all this money kind of gravitated into the markets over time, it wouldn't really affect the market because all we're doing is swapping cash for a, not yet, Britt, you're ahead of me. He's, he's quick on the trigger today. Yeah, yeah, we're not there yet. If, if we have all this cash on the sideline that's going to come running into the market, then it would seem logical that price would go up, but all we're doing is swapping cash for an asset. That's all we're doing, right? So, and, and again, as we can look at the, as, as we were looking at the chart of, of just money market balances, they just keep accumulating over time, right? So where is the money, right? So now there is some money sitting out there, right? The, there's, look, as a portfolio manager, our clients, they have, you know, a little bit of extra cash in their portfolios right now because we're waiting for an opportunity in the market to have a bit of a pullback so we can put that cash to work. So that's certainly out there, but we're pretty much mostly exposed to the markets. We're pretty close to target weights, and, and now Brent. <laughs> and that is the same for most people that are invested in the markets. If you look at a, a relative balance of their equity exposure versus their cash, it's at a very high level of equity exposure. In fact, we're at levels now that are higher than the peak of the market in 2009 and, and 2008. I'm sorry, in 2000 and 2008. Down a little bit. I mean, over the, you know during a bear market correction that we had like in 2020 or in 2022, you know you would expect that equity cash ratio would 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 change because the value of the equities are coming down and cash doesn't change. So that equity cash ratio changes. So, but, on, but by and large, the majority of people have most of their money invested in equities and a little bit in cash. And look, and we can break this down. This is overall. Um, we can break this down a little bit. We can look at the average retail investor. So the American Association of Individual Investors puts out a, a chart every month um, on allocation. Actually, every week, I apologize. Every week on allocation. So they take a survey, say how much you have in, in cash, equities, and bonds. Cash levels are not at historic lows, but they're not 
high. Equity exposure is is still very high. Well over 60 uh, 60% exposure to equities. So again, well if there's not a lot of money, you know, so retail investors don't have a lot of money uh, a lot of cash sitting on sidelines. Okay, so let's take a look at um, money market funds as a function of market capitalization. Now, this is an interesting point here. So there's $7 trillion sitting in money market accounts. The stock market <laughs> is, the market capitalization is extremely high relative to that $7 trillion. In fact, so if you take the ratio of money market accounts as a function of market capitalization, we're at basically an average of where we've been since the 1980s. So again, not there, there's not this exorbitantly high level of input coming into the markets from money market account balances. But you'll, you'll notice that during the crash in 2008, as an example, there's a big spike in that cash to money market uh, rate, uh, cash to market capitalization ratio, you would expect that. Same thing in 2000. So you know those. So during those big declines, you would expect to see. You even saw a bit of a spike in that money market to market capitalization ratio um, in in 2020. So you'd expect to see that, right? During market downturns, right? Because money market capitalization is declining and money is piling up in cash, right? So that's you'd expect to see that. But right now, there's no evidence that there's just an overwhelming amount of cash relative to market capitalization. Then, of course, then there's professional money managers, mutual fund managers, uh, pension funds, hedge funds, etc. So we take a look at those guys, the professionals, they have, ex they have exceptionally low levels of cash on hand relative to equity. So the point about all this is there is not a massive amount of cash that is literally on the sidelines waiting to be invested. And there's a very important point about this because, well, Lance, there's all this money market money, right? We can see the money market account balances. We know they're out there. Yeah, yeah. But that's not just retail investors. In fact, most retail investors aren't participating in the money markets that have the big balances in them because these are institutional government money market balances that can have a minimum investment of anywhere from 100000 to a $1 million just to get into the fund. So if you want to put your money in some of these institutional money market funds, they can be up to a $1 million just to open the account. And if we take a look at a breakdown of money markets by type, this, this, is, this is where it shows to be the, the most true, that little yellow band uh, kind of above the bottom there that has grown a bit, that's the retail money market accounts. But again, as a function of that $7 trillion, that big blue massive band, that's those institutional money market funds. That's where Apple has their $170 billion of cash. That's where Berkshire Hathaway has their $130 billion in cash and, you know, those type of things, right? So, you know, these corporate executives, these high net worth, uh, uh, high net worth individuals with companies that have cash, that's where it is. And that money is not waiting to go into the stock market. That's for a whole variety of other things. That's for um, 
payroll. That is for, you know, operating expenses. That's for all the other things that occur that businesses need acquisitions, mergers, those type of things. That's what that cash is for. Oh, I forgot one of the most important things that cash has been used for in particular, and that pickup has occurred since 2009, is corporate share buybacks. And if you take a look at the four-week average of corporate share buybacks relative to the market, you can kind of it, look, it looks like somebody you know is having a heart attack because the the breadth of the EKG is just getting wider and wider as uh, ever since 2009. So all that cash that's sitting in there on the books is going into share buybacks for companies and going into operating expenses and that type of thing. It's not waiting to come into the market itself. So when somebody tells you about the money market on the sideline myth, right? There's cash on the sidelines. It's all going to come rushing into the markets. Be real careful with that because there's really no evidence that there's any truth to that whatsoever. And, And just remember this one basic thing. For every buyer, there's a seller. I can only have 11 football players on the field. I have 300 players on the sideline, but I can only have 11 people on the field at a time. Same thing with the market. All right, be right back. investment advice blog it's required reading for the informed investor catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com and welcome back to the show this morning so fomc out uh, this week is going to be talking about cutting rates this year etc and already yields have dropped a good bit from their recent highs. And, you know, I thought I'd spend a few moments on what's happening in the credit markets because as go the credit markets, as go the economy, et cetera. And one of the big concerns, of course, is has been, you know, the ability for companies to refinance debt. Been a lot of concerns about, you know, the, the, the debt wall that's coming up, et cetera. And, you know, companies are pretty smart um, at the end of the day. They they kind of know what their liabilities are and they're managing their exposure, you know, as much as they can. And, you know, we're seeing that going on now. In fact, uh, a really interesting uh, article on the Wall Street Journal, I'm going to steal a couple of their charts from the Wall Street Journal this morning, but there's been a massive spike already um, this year in the refinancing of debt. And it's, it's been quite a busy year so far, already 120, a little more than $125 billion in just debt refinancing since the beginning of the year. So again, I mean, again, you know, that's that's a lot, but in terms of magnitude of all the debt that's out there, it's not that large, but it's clearly evidence that you know, people are getting to work using lower yields to refinance some of their higher yielding debt. And you know, this is you know, what's interesting about this and, and as we see this is and, and you know, treasury yields are very important because they kind of set the floor for everything else. And again, because they're the ultra-safe, risk-free um, investment. And, and so if we take a look as an example, you know, 
even though the Federal Reserve hasn't cut rates yet, there's a lot of anticipation they are going to cut rates later this year. And that's been what's been driving the decline in the Treasury yield. If the Fed cuts rates, yields are going to come down, not go up. And so the bond market is already running ahead of that in a lot of ways. And that's why you're seeing yields decline. And if you take a, take a look at what corporate bonds are yielding over treasuries, investors aren't demanding a whole lot of excess yield relative to the risk. So now, here's the, now, let me explain this for just a second. Right now, triple B rated and lower. That's the, the blue line at the top. If you're, if you're driving right now, don't worry about the chart. You can watch it on the live stream later. <laughs> the point is that the amount of extra yield. Now, what, what should yield represent? Yield is my hedge against default, my credit risk, right? Inflation risk, opportunity costs, all those other things. All that's got to get factored into the yield. So if I'm buying double B junk rated bonds, I should be getting paid substantially to offset that risk. First, just buying a treasury that's ultra safe. I can buy a triple A rated or double A, double A rated treasury now, depending on who rates you. But I can buy a, a ultra safe guaranteed tre U.S. treasury. Or I can buy something that has a pretty high probability of going default and not really get paid that much more for it. Why would I do that? But investors are doing this because they're all just in this chase for yield right now. So, but if, but because of that decline in the demand for yield for speculative investors and them wanting less, that means that these companies that are having trouble are able to refinance debt at lower costs. In fact, the current yield or the current yield spread above treasuries is at some of its lowest levels that we've had over the last several years, even going back to pre-pandemic. So, and, and this is why, you know, you're seeing right now, you're seeing a lot of corporate demand um, falling rates have, have, have helped spur a lot of that corporate bond issuance. And there's a lot of companies coming to markets right now that are, you know, issuing new debt. And when you start thinking about that, so there's a couple of factors that come into issuing debt. So as a company, if I can refinance my debt, if I've got higher yielding debt that I can refinance at a lower rate, that helps my cash flow, helps my income, those type of things. And right now we see a lot of that occurring. Sorry, Brent, I jumped a little bit ahead of you, but you're right. You're, you're there. It's, it's, that was the chart I needed, the share of speculative grade bonds. I know he's, he's working on this. I'm, I threw a curveball at him this morning, so he'll play catch up here. But to entice right now to, for investors to minimize cost in, in, and get these out there, Many businesses are had, had had issued secured bonds. Now, because of the drop in yields and the demand from investors, we're starting to see a, a fairly decent surge already this year in speculative grade bonds that are still secured. And now they're starting to pick up on some of that. And so 
that's shifting to a more favorable environment for borrowers. They can they can provide a, a minimum amount of security in a lot of cases and have debt issued at lower rates. And where you really start to see some of this pick up and, and something that is something worth paying attention to is what is the use of that debt for? And again, we talk about these zombie companies that are out there. So you talk about the Russell 2000 in particular, about 20% of the Russell 2000 or what we call zombie companies. What's a zombie company? A zombie company is a company that has to issue debt just to pay dividends, you know, meet cash flow needs, etc. If they didn't, if they didn't issue the debt, they wouldn't have the money to pay you, right? And that's not a, a sign of a healthy company. But right now, we're seeing right now is that a lot of these new deals have been dominated by a wave of companies that are using the debt to reduce the interest rate on their existing loans that they're using to pay dividends with. In other words, the volume of loans to raise new money has been ticking up, including loans used to pay dividends to company owners. Now, not yeah, when I'm talking about dividends, by the way, we're not talking about dividends to you, right? We're not talking because a lot of Russell 2000 don't have dividends. We're talking about the dividends to the owners of the company. So the company is being leveraged up to pay the owners of the company their dividends. Again, not a sign of a healthy company. But because of the speculative nature of, of the markets and because everybody's willing to pony up and pay for cheaper, or, or I should say that investors are willing to pony up and take less yield for the risk that they're taking on, this is giving the opportunity for these companies to refinance a lot of debt. And in fact, this is despite the fact that a lot of banks have been tightening their lending standards. You know, this is one of the big worries last year is that normally when you have a spike in bank lending standards, that correlates to a recession in the economy. And again, this is one of those indicators. We go back, we talk about all the, the recessionary indicators out there. We talk about the inverted yield curve. We talk about the leading economic index. We talk about the ISM manufacturing indexes, blah, blah, blah. Another one of those recessionary indicators is the tightening of bank lending standards. And you had a very sharp spike in the tightening of lending standards, and it didn't lead to a recession. And now that's starting to ease. Now, now banks are starting to ease up those, leading, lead, uh, those lending standards because this idea of a recession is now off the table. So if there's no recession, I don't need, I, I need, as a bank, right? I need to be loaning out money, I need to be doing debt deals. So I make money. That's how banks make money. So if there's no risk of a recession, then there's no risk in doing bank loans. And so they're getting back to work, right? They're starting to ease standards already. And this, and not surprisingly, consumer confidence is ticking up. And if we take a look at asset-backed securities issuance, uh, these are things like autos, credit cards, other type loans, variable interest rate loans, et cetera, buy now, pay later, those type of things. Consumers are increasing their borrowing. As rates have come down, they've gone right back into the credit market because I can borrow cheap, right? So there's been a jump in applications for mortgages to buy homes, issuance of asset-backed securities, uh, bonds backed by a variety of debt, such as credit cards and auto loans. They've all been surging in January. So 
here's the interesting part, right? So, so all of this suggests that, by the way, all of this suggests that there is little worry about a recession in, in the markets, and particularly in the credit markets. The credit markets do not appear to be worried about the onset of a recession right now, especially with the Fed about to start cutting rates. That's bringing a lot of the speculative activity back into the market. So, again, look, I'm just telling you what the data is saying. Right? There's, you know, we have all these indicators that suggest there's economic risk out there, but all the indicators are suggesting that a recession is very unlikely, at least for this year. Doesn't mean next year, the year after, it means we're never going to have a recession. And of course, we're going to have a recession at some point. The question is always the timing. And right now, the credit markets, which are the lifeblood of the economy, are certainly not worried about that at the moment. All right, be right back after the break. Get ready to wrap up the show this morning. Man, it went by fast. Don't go away. news you can use delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com have to chuggle have to chuggle chuckle i'm already ready to drink it's already a monday um, I know I have to chuckle. Uh, James in our YouTube channel says, All I want to do is buy great blue chip companies or even cash flow generating companies from the SP 500 at dirt cheap bargain basement deals. Wouldn't we all? In fact, uh, my article that's coming out tomorrow is talking about the fact that right now more than 25% of the SP 500 trade at price to sales of greater than five times. There's a hundred and 83 companies that, that are that traded price sales above five times. Uh, there's uh, there's 91 that trade above 10 times price to sales in the S&P 500. And these are great companies, all of them, right? They're just hugely expensive. And the whole market is vastly expensive. And, and you know, buying stocks at uh, bargain basement prices has been something that's been, you know, on the top of our list for a long time. And you know, it's going to take quite the correction, you know, for that to occur. But, you know, again, you know, what's going to cause that, right? Um, 2022, everybody thought that was the beginning of the end, so to speak. Didn't turn out to be that way. We had a mild correction and then markets took off again. Uh, last year, I had a 10% correction, but certainly didn't bring down value. Valuations actually went up. We had multiple expansion last year. Um, and, and just the value of what we're willing to pay for companies, is accelerated. 
And if and if you don't really understand price to sales, price to sales are pretty easy to to understand. If a company trades at two times price to sales, that's expensive, by the way. Because the company has to grow earnings at 20% every single year. So the year-over-year growth rate of earnings, sorry, not earnings, I apologize, of sales, revenue, has to be at 20% just to maintain the valuation of the company at two times price to sales. If you buy a company below one times price to sales, now you're talking. Right. And there's some companies out there like that. Right. You don't want them. You don't want to own them, but they're great companies. CVS is a good example. Trades at uh, like 0.3 times price to sales. Great value. Stock isn't performing. It's been dead money for quite a while here, but you know, it's, it's a great company. It's where you go to pick up all your medications, et cetera. It trades at a very de- uh, steep discount with a over 3% yield. But it's just not doing anything. But once you start talking about five times price to sales, you need year-over-year growth rates of more than a, greater than 100% to maintain that. When you start talking about 10 times price to sales, now you're talking about the company can't pay taxes, which is kind of illegal. They can't pay employees, which is kind of problematic. They can't do R&D. They have to, they have to return every cent of every dollar that they make, period, back to the investor at 10 times price of sales. And now you're talking about companies trading at 15, 20, 25, 30 times price of sales. Valuations are a problem. We'll talk some more about this tomorrow because it's it's part of a thesis. I was asked about uh, this past week. Got an email from one of our listeners. Is there a reason? Uh, oh, never mind. Um, I got an email this past week talking about the theory of reflexivity, which is the subject of tomorrow's article. So we'll get into this a little bit more. But valuations are are you know important in that aspect so again as we uh you know kind of look at the markets you know we talk about valuations and it's like well these valuations are just crazy they're just they're just it's insane what the valuations are right now and hey i get it right but it is the market that we live in you know we used to have a market where we traded on fundamentals and we haven't done that since 2009 it's all about the fed in fact this week, here's the headline from uh, an article this morning. This week will be determined by what Powell says between 2.30 and 3 p.m. Eastern time on Wednesday. That's right. And we go from one economic report to the next. We don't look at the economic report and go, oh, this is awesome, right? Or, or this is terrible for the economy, whatever it is. We, all we care about is what's the Fed going to think about that? Is that, is is that going to change the Fed's project, trajectory of cutting rates? Inflation, employment, whatever it is, GDP. But we don't look at the quality of that data. We don't care about what the quality of that data. I was telling you earlier, you know, that in you know this latest GDP report, it took two dollars and fifty cents, fifty three cents of of debt just to generate that growth. And an eight hundred and fifty billion dollar increase in debt in a quarter, but we don't talk about that. 
All we care about is whether or not the Fed's going to cut rates. And so we make all of our investment decisions based on what the Fed's going to do because the Fed's going to cut rates and they're going to bail us out. They are now the market manipulators par excellence. But as long as but as long as, you know, we're making money, we really don't care, right? <laughs> you know, there's a consequence to all this though. And 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 you know, when you look down the road, I'll probably be dead, so we won't get a chance to talk about this. But, you know, eventually there's a consequence to all of these actions. There is going to be a payback. I don't know when that's going to occur, but, you know, you can't keep running financial markets based on monetary accommodation. Or maybe you can. I, you know, just, since we've never done it before, <laughs> you know, there's a first time for everything. Um, since we've never treated markets the way that we're treating them now. Not, and by the way, this is not just domestically. This is globally, right? This is Europe. This is, you know, uh, China. It's uh, Japan. It's, it's all monetary intervention. Cutting rates, yield curve controls, you know, you know, just, you know, pick your poison. Balance sheet expansions. You know, the entire globe is now dependent on debt expansion in order to support the financial markets. And you wonder why there's so much angst in the world, right? Because we're making the rich richer and the poor poor. And, then, and the rich make up, you know, 10% of the economy and everybody else is struggling to make ends meet. But it's not surprising that there's so much angst. We're not to the point that anybody wants to do anything about it yet. But that's why there's so much angst. And there's so much misinformation about what's causing the angst. All, all the angst can be traced right back to wealth. At the end of the day, it's all about money and power, right? So again, we'll get there. Don't know when. Yes, I've got Scott McNeely's rant in uh, tomorrow's article. As a reminder. Thank you, Michael. Uh <laughs> You know, but th these are the things that, you know, that make it challenging. But, you know, as investors, all we can do, and, and look, I have a job, and my job is pretty simple. I have got, I've got to make money for my clients when I can. I've got to do everything I can to protect assets when markets are going down, but I've got to make money when markets are going up. I can't afford to sit in cash going, well, someday these valuations are going to matter because I, may I will eventually be right. Valuations will eventually matter at some point in the future, but you know, hanging out in cash and waiting for that to happen, and and to James's point about buying, you know, just I'm going to sit here in cash and I'm just going to wait for the market to crash so I can buy really good companies cheap. I won't have any clients left <laughs> by the time I get there. So we have to navigate the markets for what we have right now, even though we know that these valuations are stupid. I have to own the companies that are driving the markets. And we have to do that with a very short lease, lease using technical analysis and risk management. But right now, it is what it is. And we know what the consequences are long term. But you need a trigger event, as we've talked about before. You've got to have some type of trigger event, whatever that is. And again, it's nothing that we know about. It's not Taiwan. It's not Iran. It's not anything else. And every time something happens, right, my feed gets filled up with people, you know, talking about, you know, oh, this just happened in Iran. And, you know, this is the beginning of World War III and the markets are up the next day. <laughs> so if there was a concern 
right? Here's how you know. When you go read your articles of whatever you're reading, and they're saying, oh, this is going to be the beginning of World War III, and you look at the market and the market's up, the market's already discounted it. Remember, the, the market is like a hive of human intelligence. You have millions upon millions of people all at once interacting on the markets, buying and selling. And all this information is now getting processed by these millions of, of human minds and also artificial intelligence and a whole variety of other things, algorithms, et cetera, all taking this data in on a real-time basis. We have, we have money managers that their entire program of managing money is following sentiment and comments on Twitter or social media in general. And they're just watching what everybody's saying, who, who's buying what stock, who's selling what stock, and they're using all that data on a nanosecond basis to make trading decisions, things that we can't do as humans. So, the, the, so when you read negative headlines, the first thing you do is go check the market. So if something happens overseas or in the United States and – you go look at the markets and the markets are down 5%. That's something worth worrying about. Because the market, whatever that was, the market wasn't prepared for. If you read a headline and the market's flat or up, the market's already discounted it. That's what makes investing challenging. Our human nature and market intelligence are two very different things. All right, wraps up the show for the day. We'll be back tomorrow um, talking about uh, tomorrow's article. Again, we'll get into this theory of reflexivity and valuations. We'll talk some more about that tomorrow. Uh, get by the website. Our, um, send comments, questions, whatever we can do for you. Happy to do it. All on the website now, realinvestmentadvice.com. See you tomorrow.